Let's, let's go to the Lord and pray together. Father, thank you. We come thankful for just this opportunity, this time that we, we sing of just wonderful things and things that are indeed, you know, how, how can we sing that the cross was wonderful, but it, it was and it is, and we just, we thank you for it. We thank you that you are with us, that you are our God. And we come humbled before you, Lord, humbled because we, we need you in every way, humbled because we have rebelled against you, we've sinned against you, we've sought our own ways, every one of us, and outside of grace, not one of us would have come. Even as your word says, not even one, no, not one seeks after you. No one understands. And so we come before you, Father, and we just, we praise you. We thank you. We thank you for your presence here. We, we recognize that you are omnipresent. You're present everywhere. And you are the living and the true God. You know all things. You know our hearts right now. You know what we're thinking. You know what we're feeling. You know what we're going through. You know all these things. And for us as believers who are in Christ, you have put your spirit inside of us. And now your spirit dwells within us. And so we are ever before you, Lord, and we come mindful of these things. Mindful of these things as we go to your word that you know. You know all things. And so we pray that your spirit would help us. Help us to see that the cross is indeed wonderful this morning. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world who are suffering. And in many ways, even as Paul says in Colossians, they're filling up the afflictions that are lacking in the cross of Christ, the sufferings of Christ, the afflictions of Christ. And so we, we come and we, we see that and we pray for them and pray that you give them grace in the midst of these things. May you uphold them and keep them and help them to even look to Christ who went to the cross and suffered for sinners, suffered for us, and may you give them grace and endurance in their time of need. And may they rejoice in you. And so be with those here as well, those who are, are struggling, those here who may be, you know, for those even in our community who may be sick or struggling or troubled or fighting or whatever may be the case, just pray you'd be with them, Father, to see their need for you in it all. We were made for you. We were made to worship you. And so we pray for each person who doesn't know Christ. They may see that the brokenness, the guilt, the, the darkness of soul and heart, that they need you, O oh Lord. May they find you, we pray, and we pray that you would be with us as we turn to your word. May you help us to glory in the cross this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles there to the Gospel of John, and we'll be in John chapter 19, continuing this chapter, and we'll be in verses 16 through 30 this morning, so if you'll turn there. 
Now as we come to this rather sobering part of this gospel, I'm reminded of my own life before I was a Christian. Now I know many of you know of my life before I was a Christian. You know, I've spoken of it at various times and various sermons and such, but as many of you know, I didn't become a Christian until I was in my first year of college. Now, if you had met me then, and if I was honest with you, which, you know, I may not have been honest, or I may not even known this was what was really going on in my heart at the time, but if I was able to be honest with you at that time, I would have told you that I was lost. And I, I wouldn't have meant, you know, lost in the biblical way. I would just mean I, I was lost. Like, I didn't, I had no idea. Like, why, why is this, why am I struggling all the time? Why is there this darkness in my heart? Why is there this sense of dirtiness about me? This weight, this burden that I'm carrying everywhere I go. I have no idea what that is. It must be just what it means to be human. I don't even, I don't have meaning. I don't know what meaning is. I can't find meaning anywhere I go. I just can't get it. I can't solve this, these, these things going on in my heart. I was lost. I think that's the way I would have probably answered you is I, would just, I was just lost. I had no idea what was going on. And if you could place a label over me, I think it would be something like this, without hope and without God in the world, which is right. And that, why would it be that? Well, I had looked to what the world had to offer. And at every turn, as I, as I reached in to everything that the world was kind of presenting to me, what I would, what I would pull out is what, I, what I'd pull out there and what I would find is I would find no hope. I would find that there wasn't solace there. I'd find that there wasn't really light there. There wasn't really clarity there. There wasn't really meaning there. I, I would even try to find meaning. Perhaps I can find it in this or in that. And every time I could not find it. I, maybe, maybe there's relief if I just do this or if I you know, find a girlfriend. You know, or if I do you know, read this book or if I listen to this person or whatever. If I play enough video games you know, or whatever it is. Maybe I'll find relief somewhere. Maybe some movie will finally show me or some story will tell me and give me relief to this soul that is aching. And every time it didn't. It didn't provide that lasting joy. So I was lost. I was in a well, if you could say something like that, with no way out. And so what changed? (laughs) That right now I'm right here standing at this pulpit before all of you. And this is what changed. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. And you just go, (laughs) you know, right? Is that your experience too? You know, it's... So in the midst of my lostness, there at my dad's home in Sepulpa, Oklahoma, there as I read in the Bible of Christ and what he had did, what he had done for me, how he died for me and he had died for my sin, 
what did I find? I found hope. I found solace. I found light. I found clarity. I found meaning. I found relief. I found lasting joy. I found the way for sinners through Christ who died for me. Praise the Lord. Well, this morning, as we come to our passage, we come to this pivotal moment in John's gospel where Jesus would do just that. As we've been walking through this gospel, we see him do this. The king of all the universe would die for sinners. So let's read here then, beginning in verse 16. May God bless his word. May God's inspired word bring hope and light and peace to you this morning. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. With him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic in Latin and in Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, But the tunic was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. And so the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, and so they put a sponge full of sour wine on the hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. So here, as we've progressed through these chapters and on the road to the cross, we are no longer on the road to the cross. We are here at the cross. 
And so we find here that Jesus' trial is over. He had just come before Pilate, answered his questions and so on. Well, all that is done. There will be no more discussion of whether he should or he shouldn't go to the cross or be crucified. He will die. He will go to the cross. And so we have here then his, his offering for sinners. Now you might have heard this kind of language before. You know, offering and, and this kind of thing. You know, sacrifice. You know, we talk a lot about that in the church. And we perhaps even throw it around a lot, you know. Uh, offering, sacrifice and all these things about what Jesus had done for us. But what does that mean, you know? If you, if you are here and you've never been in the church before, how would you explain that to someone who, who has never been in the church? Or if you're a believer here and you, you're explaining it to someone who's never been in the church, how would you explain it to them? Sacrifice. Offering. Does that make any sense whatsoever? So let's back up then and let's remember kind of this broader context here. We don't just start in the New Testament, right? We start with what? <laughs> the Old Testament. So we don't, we don't just throw that side of the Bible out. That side of the Bible informs everything that we see in the New Testament. And when I say everything, I mean like underline it, highlight it, circle it 300 times, just keep circling it, because it's informing everything that we're seeing in the New Testament. And you cannot really truly understand the New Testament aside from the Old Testament. And so, in that light, the broader context then. So way back, beginning of our Bibles in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, we say it so simply, but it was so devastating. They sinned against God. And so they fell from God. And right then and right there, separated from God. Do not know him anymore. And that is you. When you're born into this world, you do not know God either. Every one of us. And so from then on, all of us have rebelled against God and so rises all the ideologies, the philosophies, the thoughts, the history, the wars, and everything else, and all these things that we're doing day to day in our homes and places all around the world and everything, and it all relates to God and our relationship with Him or not having a relationship with Him. And so from then on, we have rebelled against God, and so thus we get sick, we die, we suffer. We struggle, and man, do we struggle sometimes, right? Over so many things, and we are broken people. And so we see from Genesis onward that sin, it has a price. And that price is massively costly. And it's a price that cannot just be simply pushed under a rug. It has to be paid for. It has to have some sort of punishment 
And this is also why we see then in the Old Testament, which you may, if you've read the Old Testament or not, you know, he's wondering what's going on with all this talk about offerings and sacrifices. I mean, Leviticus. I mean, that's not a book I regularly, you know, would like to go to and read about all these offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings, grain offerings, and peace offerings, and so on, free will offerings, and so on, you know. But man, that's massively important. (laughs) That book right there. What's all that about? All this talk about this stuff is because sin must be paid for. Now this may sound somewhat detached from today. But we still get this really, even now. It is a criminal going to jail. It's a crime being justly condemned. Why? Because they're deserving of punishment for what they've done. And so it was that these offerings were offered up for all these various sins that we committed, animal after animal, and it was never, never enough to pay for all of our sin. And so it is then bringing it to that kind of example of criminals and, and crime today, well, that's us. All of us have sinned, and our sin cannot go unpunished before the good, he's good, the holy, and the just God. He is righteous, uncompromisingly. He is holy, uncompromisingly. And so sin cannot just go unpunished. And so what's the answer? And so Jesus, he comes to be the offering. He is born into the world and he comes into the world to do what? To take that punishment upon himself in our place. So all that offering talk, all that sacrifice talk, it all makes total sense now. Here comes Him who is perfect to come and die for us. And so here, during Passover, which again, Old Testament, (laughs) can't get away from it. You don't want to get away from it. So during Passover, so if you remember God there, he passed over Israel and he passed over those houses that had what over the doors? You remember from Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments, right? Yeah, blood over their door frames. A lamb that was slain. And so judgment passed by Israel. And everyone who did not have blood on the door was at least the firstborn was put to death. And so Jesus would come then as what? As the Passover lamb. And this is why we see again and again, John has been showing us how Jesus is indeed the very fulfillment of everything that God has said. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Now just a To wrap your mind around that a little bit, Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus came. And listen to how Jesus fulfills this. Isaiah 53, 7, He was oppressed 
and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And we have seen that. We have seen Jesus do just that. Isaiah 53.10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. And then Isaiah 52, 14 and 15, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so he shall sprinkle many nations with what? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Strange language. You know, how many of you want to be washed in blood, you know? Well, this is why. And so Jesus, he would be the perfect, spotless, sinless, blameless, without blemish offering for us. And so it is, then what? We come to his cross. And so the Roman soldiers here, They take Jesus and they lead him on to be crucified. Now, even at this point, before Jesus is crucified, it's just as Isaiah said, he is marred beyond human semblance. At this point, prior to going to the cross at all, he was a sore sight to see. He would have already had lost a great deal of blood after being repeatedly and dreadfully beaten again and again with a whip strung with pieces of bone and lead and other metals and like iron balls. And so he was beaten basically to a pulp. And so here he is. And now take up the cross, you know. That's, I mean, how well would you do with that? I mean, that's just you're just totally weakened already. I mean, you're, you're hurting everywhere and now you've got to carry the cross. And so here he is called to take up the very object then of his death and that is exactly what he does. He took it up and we may have something of a different image here. So I know a lot of times we picture an actual cross on his back, which may have been the case. But more common around that time, it was more the cross member of the cross that they would normally carry as they walked onward to be crucified. And so he traveled there with this cross member around his back, the streets of Jerusalem, and he went onward into the place of Golgotha, or you may know that term more commonly as Calvary from the Latin Same word. You wonder what Calvary is? Golgotha. (laughs) That's what it is. And vice versa. And so it was called the place of the skull, either because it it looked like a skull, and it really kind of does if you see it, like the holes in the mountain place there or the hill there. You know, or it could have just been because it was a place of death. It was a dreadful place. People being crucified. And so we are told then in verse 18, there they crucified him with with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. And that's it. (laughs) That's all that John says. 
about crucifixion. That's all he says about this practice. Yet, you know, they, they would have known this practice and they would have known that this practice was indeed very, very dreadful. Just to give you an, kind of a glimpse of that, the word excruciating, it was derived from the cross. Now, we may, we may use that term sometimes, you know, when we have like a toothache. Man, I got some excruciating pain, you know, or you may have some other pain, you know, got a hurt leg or whatever, you know. And, oh, man, that's excruciating. Well, believe me, you have not reached the level of the word excruciating with a toothache or these other pains in respect to the cross. You're not reaching the level of the experience of the cross here. And so there at Golgotha, they would have fastened Jesus you know, with five to seven inch long nails to the cross member. And then they would have hoisted him up. They would have had the upright beam and the vertical beam already in place. And they would have nailed his feet to the beam as well. And likely with a single nail. So everything done with the cross, it's about maximizing pain. Everything they're doing is about ensuring that you're going to suffer to the highest extent you possibly can. Now, they would even have something like a seat in the upright beam that was on there called the sedocula. And the sedocula, that was not just like, oh, yeah, that's nice. You know, to sit on, like to rest, this is great. That's nice that they thought of that. That's not, that's not why they had that there. They had that so it would prolong the pain and the suffering as the person is fighting to live. So what I mean is, they're like this, and so they can breathe at the hoist themselves up, right? And they get a breath, and then they can rest on that seat. And so it provides this kind of false sense of security that they can just keep on fighting, but they're really only keeping on the suffering, and the, the suffering is only going on longer because of that seat. And so you see that everything about the cross was to maximize suffering. And so it would be upon this altar, Golgotha, and the wooden cross, that he would make his offering up to God, that he would be the offering up to God. That the cross wasn't just his place of offering, but it was also, as, as Spurgeon called it, it was his throne of grief. And so we see here that exactly with Pilate's inscription upon Jesus' throne of wood. And so this inscription essentially functioned as the charge against Jesus. Now, if you've wondered why they did that, it wasn't just to, to mock Jesus. It was, this is his charge against him. And it was to serve as a warning to all who sought to ensure everyone who reads it, they would be uh, discouraged from saying, oh, you think you're a king, do you? Well, that's what's going to happen to you if th- you think you're a king. And they wanted to make sure everybody knew that and they could read that. And so they wrote it in three languages. Aramaic, so the Jews could read it. Latin, so the Roman soldiers could read it. And Greek, so that everyone throughout the empire could read it. 
And so in order to mock the Jews then, Pilate, again, ironically, he has written on it in verse 19, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He writes it to to defy and to even mock the Jews. You think you got me? Well, take this, you know. And yet, even though he writes it to mock them, it would indeed be this throne of glory that Jesus would have and he would reign as king over all things for all eternity as the king of the universe who has offered up himself for sinners. And so in all this we see and we need to consider his costly public sacrifice. His offering up of himself for us and in doing that he would have his throne to be an ignoble cross. Now note well here, he doesn't, he doesn't give you a ladder to climb up like you have to earn your way to God. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, all right, you've got to go to church this many times, otherwise you're not going to make it. You make sure you read your Bible and pray, otherwise you're not going to make it. All right, make sure you obey every single thing that I said, otherwise you're not going to make it. That's not what he does. It's not a ladder. If that's the way you understand Christianity, you've misunderstood Christianity, it's not a ladder. You're not trying to earn anything. What does he do? Not a ladder, but he comes down to us. So Christianity, it's not about earning anything, about being a goody two-shoes, about... You know, you can out-holy somebody, you know? I think that sometimes we're like that in the church, you know? Man, I'm, I'm holier than that guy, that girl, you know? Boom, look at my holiness. That's not, that's not why you're here. I mean, if you know Christ, it's not anything to do with you, is it? I mean, it's totally because of Christ. It's because he came down to us. Not because we went up to him, which is impossible. We couldn't do it, and Israel serves as an example of those who can never do it on their own. We need Christ from every single angle. He is the Passover lamb. He is the offering. He is the king who died for you. And so we need, noticed it was costly. It was a costly offering, and it was a public offering also. And this is so, in this, we see that this is, this is not a private gospel. It's not what you gain when you became a Christian, is like, this is just my thing here, you know? I mean, no one else can say anything to me. I mean, you know, I got my own little Christian thing going on. That's not what we were bought to. It's not to be locked away in our hearts, in our homes, or churches. It is, it is glorious. It is wonderful. It is magnificent. It is wondrous. It is to be shared with the world. It is obtained by faith alone and flowing from that faith, being attached to the vine, will overflow love and fruit and Christ-likeness. 
because you know Christ. The fruit of faith. And this is why Christians all over the world throughout history have given up their lives, not for their comforters and their couches, but for Christ. Because this is not our home. He has me. He, he is my life. It is his kingdom. He is the king. This, is, this president we have, that's not truly my king. My king is Jesus Christ. No matter where you are in the world, everywhere, Jesus is your king. And so we would do well to remember this in our day. How deeply we need a revival of men and women, boys and girls that are sold out for Christ. And I was, as I was reading and, and kind of researching this, I came across this rather sad example, but I think it's a fitting kind of even indictment of our day. But many years ago, you know, back in 1954, a communist newspaper, they were writing about the gospel and Christians and you know I'm certainly sure they were convicting then but man yeah they're convicting today too and so they, they wrote this somewhat defiantly so remember this these are communist writing of Christians and they say this this gospel is a much more powerful weapon for the renewal of society than our Marxist philosophy I mean, right there, like, what? Do you? Do you act like that? <laughs> and they continue all the same. It is we who will finally beat you. We are only a handful, and you Christians are numbered by the millions. We communists do not play with words. We are realists in seeing that we are determined to achieve our objective. We know how to obtain the means of our salaries and wages. We keep only what is strictly necessary, and we give the rest for propaganda purposes, to this propaganda, we also consecrate our, all our free time and part of our holiday. You, however, give only a little time and hardly any money for the spreading of the gospel of Christ. How can anyone believe in the supreme value of the Christian gospel if you do not practice it and spread it? And if you sacrifice neither time nor money for it, believe me, it is we who will win we believe in our communist message. And we are ready to sacrifice everything, even our life. But you people are afraid to even soil your hands. Now, we aren't communists. We, nor do we believe an iota of communism. But wow, isn't that convicting? Like, I mean, they're right. Like, are you willing this very day to lay down your life for him? We have the better message. We have the truth. And so as we, as we look at Christ and this costly sacrifice and his costly sacrifice, God, he's not calling you and I just to say, oh my, look how he suffered. That was bad. But he's calling us to say, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And we just sang that, right? 
That's to be our response. Not sentimentalism, like, oh man, that moved me good. And then go, and nothing changes at all. We have real reason to question ourselves in these things. A love for Christ will lead to a living for Christ. And so that's to be our response. Not earning anything. He has me, but because I love him, I serve him. That's it. Now in the midst of all this, in the midst of his immense suffering here, his offering here, we see also here his care. His care. And so, now I'm not, I'm not here referring to the heart of love that Christ has for you directly. He does love you. But that's not exactly what I think we're focusing on here. Instead, this is this, what is my, in mind here is this instance in verse 24 through 27. With, you know, this whole thing between his mom and John. Now, you might think this to be a bit odd. You know, in the midst of all this that's going on, his suffering and everything else, we have this interaction here. I mean, what is this about? You know, just right, right in the middle, you know? What's that about? Well, this, this is about Jesus' care for his family in view of his going away. Yet also it has these undertones as well of the, kind of the vital and, uh, and even greater importance of the family of the body of Christ. Yes, Jesus had brothers. We saw that back in John 7. You remember that? And the Feast of Booze and like they're saying, oh, you're going to go to the feast, you know, and all this stuff like that. But wherever they are uh, at this moment, they are not here at the cross for their brother. What's going on? Even if they don't believe. And so Jesus here, though, is ensuring the well-being of his mother. He's caring for her even then. Even while he's up there suffering, he's, he's obeying, honor your father and mother as he's suffering to the highest extent. And so we, we see that immense love of Christ here in that, but we also see the interconnected, interconnected nature of those who know and follow Christ as well. It is these, as he has told us, who hear the word of God and do it. It is these who are his mothers and brothers and sisters. It is, as Jesus said in Matthew 29, 19, 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So it is these who are his mother's brothers, sisters. And so we see both of these things here. And so we see here, indeed, his authentic love from every angle. Loving his mom, you know, caring for her even as he's on the cross. And loving his disciples. He does indeed do all things well. Even there, he's considering others above himself. And though this this is a small part here, and we hardly even think of it, man, you know, just how much are we focusing on other people like this? 
we're, we're going through stuff and we're just like, no, it's just, I can only focus on me. I got nothing, I got nothing else for nobody else. Just me. Well, that's not what Jesus did. Even here, his eyes are still considering others above himself. And so in view of his care, we may also ask, how are we caring for others? How are we caring for our families? How are we caring for our parents? And when I say back to families, when I say that, like husbands, how are you leading your families to worship God? And not here. That's not even primarily your calling, husbands. Deuteronomy 6 is your calling. You're to take it to your family at home and lead them in worship of God at home. And God will come knocking at your door. Just like he came to Adam's door first. How are we caring for our families? How are we caring for one another? How are we caring for our brothers and sisters in Christ? How are we living out the reality of our faith? These are the things I, as I read this, these verses, and just what a heart of service to God. Just pray, Father, help me to have a love like that, have a heart of service like that towards you, towards my children, my wife, and my family. And so we see that. And so following this, following his offering, his care, we see then finally his death. Now Jesus, he would not just suffer, but he would also suffer unto death, even death on a cross. He would bring it to completion. And so it is that we see God's word fulfilled. All of this and this gives me great hope. All of this that we're seeing is part of God's definite plan coming about. That God's words spoken many hundreds of years ago are being fulfilled in Christ. And so as the, the soldiers, they're casting lots over Jesus. Psalm twenty-two nineteen that Dennis read earlier, or 18, that Dennis read earlier is being fulfilled. God's plans are coming about. Here is the psalmist, like the, the Davidic psalmist king coming to fruition. And so it is even with only his two words there. In verse 28, I thirst. In that he fulfills Psalm 69, 21. And so from every angle, we're being called to see and believe that this is the one who came to save Sinners. God is in control. He's accomplishing His plan then and today. Amen. He is still in control. And so it is then that we see it is finished. He accomplishes His work. And He goes on to the very end and He offers up Himself for you as the all-sufficient sacrifice for sinners. And so it is that he cries out, it is finished. It is accomplished. It is complete. The Puritan Matthew Henry, he powerfully says to this, it is finished. That is, the malice and enmity of his persecutors had now done their worst. It is finished. That is, the counsel and command of his father concerning his sufferings 
were now fulfilled. Every iota and tittle of it exactly answered. It is finished. That is, all the types and prophecies of the Old Testament which pointed at the sufferings of the Messiah were accomplished and answered. It is finished. That is, sin is finished. An end made of transgression by the bringing in of an everlasting righteousness. It is finished. That is, his sufferings were now finished. Both those of his soul and those of his body, it is finished. That is, his life was now finished. He was just ready to breathe his last, and now he is no more in this world. It is finished. That is, the work of man's redemption and salvation is now completed. At least the hardest part of the undertaking is over. A full satisfaction is made to the justice of God. A fatal blow given to the power of Satan. A fountain of peace and happiness laid that shall never fail. And so it was many years ago, Christ became my Savior. And he brought peace to my own soul. His word is true. And I would imagine if you're here and you know Christ, that is your experience also. And if you're here and you don't know Christ, he may well become your savior this very morning. And so friends, Know it and know it well. It is finished. May you also know this, believe this, and glory in the finished work of our great King. He came as an offering for us. He came as an offering for you. So if you don't know Him here this morning, you are there where I was, without hope and without God in the world, you may this day be with hope and with God in this world through faith in Jesus Christ. So hear it well this morning. It is finished. It is accomplished. This work is done. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just come and thank you. Thank you for the wonderful cross. We just worship you right now. Just pray, Father, you would work in our hearts and ask that you would help us, that we would see all these things and see the glory of this offering, the, gore, the, the, the reality of this costly public sacrifice. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, they might right now put their faith in Christ and believe. It is finished indeed. And for us who know the Lord, may, may you deal with us even right now, Father. Are we living as Christians? Could the, 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 the sayings of the communists in that newspaper be true of us right now? And so may we, Lord, may you help us to repent. May you help us to bow our faces and knees before you and seek your face and proclaim this one true gospel and declare your name. 
And so help us, Lord, to live out the reality of our faith, the love of our faith, the selflessness of it, the cross 